Hello and welcome to the first in our series of Antitrust in Asia podcasts in conjunction with our Stronger Together partner, Northerms. A quick word about our Stronger Together network for those not familiar with it. We have built the network over many years and it now comprises more than 300 law firms across the world. We've spent decades understanding different markets and building relationships with the best law firms, which brings me nicely to my guest speakers. This podcast will focus on Singapore, and I'm delighted to have Darren Shaw and Scott Clements join me from the leading Singaporean and Southeast Asian law firm, Allen & Gledhill. Darren is a partner and co-heads the firm's competition and antitrust practice. He is a leading competition law specialist whose practice covers antitrust litigation, international cartels and merger control, and whose market-leading expertise dates back to the competition law's inception in the region. Scott Clements is also a partner in the firm's competition and antitrust practice. He has nearly 13 years of experience in Singapore with expertise in relation to both contentious and non-contentious competition law matters. Darren, Scott and I will now spend the next 20 minutes or so discussing the current antitrust landscape in Singapore, including an overview of the merger control and antitrust regimes, the Singaporean Competition Authority's current enforcement levels, as well as offering some practical tips on what clients should look out for when navigating the competition regime in Singapore. Darren, Scott, welcome to this podcast and thanks for joining I wanted to kick off by asking you to give our listeners an overview of the merger control regime in your jurisdiction. Scott, I think you were going to lead on that. Well, thanks, Alistair. I think the, the, the first point to make, of course, is that the Singapore system is a risk-based voluntary system. So it's not mandatory in the sense that there are thresholds, revenue thresholds, as there are in several other jurisdictions. Uh, and it's also non-suspensory uh, by law, albeit that the triple CS does have the ability to impose directions on parties uh, in certain circumstances, but we can uh, we can we can speak about that uh, a bit more later. Uh, now, having said it's a voluntary system, I think there's a few important caveats that uh, that, that need to be mentioned alongside uh, that statement. And the first is that, of course, there's no limitation period in Singapore within which the triple CS may review a non-notified merger, and this is something that uh, often um, uh, needs to be carefully considered when deciding whether you're going to, to make a notification or not. Uh, and as recently as last year, we were involved in an investigation which was uh, initiated more than seven years after the closing of the transaction, and in that context, the CS was asking for market shares uh, pre and post merger, so dating back eight years, so it's a very difficult thing to, to deal with. And I think something that needs to be constantly kept in mind uh, when we uh, raise the fact that it's a voluntary system. The, 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 and the number of these uh, uh, proactive investigations are increasing from our observation. The, the other thing I wanted to, to note is that uh, the TRCS in recent cases have also referred to the fact that the parties hadn't notified pre-closing uh, as part of its decision to impose financial penalties, uh, which leads to the, the question how voluntary is, is voluntary. Darren? And, and thanks, Scott. Um, 
that leads to this uh, feeling, and um, it, it has been spoken about, that perhaps the triple CSS uh, merger control regime um, is a hybrid of a mandatory and voluntary system. Um, we know for a fact that self-assessment using the methodologies which are published by the triple CS is mandatory. The triple CS has said this. It emphasizes that. So the responsibility is on the parties to self-assess. Um, the filing is technically voluntary, but it is not voluntary in the sense of parties having a free choice in whether they notify. As Scott has mentioned, where parties have uh, failed to notify a transaction which the triple CS feels should have been notified, uh, we have precedent for the triple CS imposing substantial financial penalties for that failure to do so. The other thing I would mention uh, in the context of merger control in Singapore is that uh, Singapore is very much a proxy for the Southeast Asian region. Um, there are 10 members countries within the Association for Southeast Asian Nations with um, competition regimes which are similar in some respects but also different um, in relation to certain aspects of process and substantive analysis. Uh, because Singapore within this um, ecosystem is, is usually the headquarters of uh, ASEAN-based international investments and where strategic decisions are taken, um, where parties have a question as to which Southeast Asian jurisdictions they should file in, Singapore is often thought of as a lead jurisdiction in the sense that if there is a clearance in Singapore, anecdotally, the uh, instances of intervention by other Southeast Asian regulators is uh, minimal. Um, and uh, I, from a strategic point of view, that makes uh, Singapore important, not just as a national jurisdiction, but also as a uh, lead jurisdiction for the region. Quite like what I suppose Brazil is um, for South America and what South Africa is for the African continent. Now that, that's very helpful. Thank you both. And it's you know it's interesting that I think often one can think of voluntary regimes as being sometimes being ones that, that, that merging parties can ignore and I think you, you've made a number of points to underline the importance and significance of Singapore's regime notwithstanding the fact that it is um, a, voluntary uh, a voluntary regime. I, I wanted just to move on and, and ask you about the review periods. Obviously um, the length of time to, to, to receive a clearance decision is often uh, an important question we get asked by our clients, and uh, it would be helpful just to get a bit of an overview of the, the review periods in Singapore. Right. Well, the CCCS, as uh, with a lot of other jurisdictions, adopt this phase one and phase two review split. And, of course, phase, a phase one review is for, 
for the more straightforward cases, uh, both factually and substantively, and uh, phase two cases are, are for those that are a bit more complex. And the, the triple CS has indicative working time frames of 30 working days for a phase one review and an additional 120 working days for a phase two review. Uh, but of course, uh, these timelines are not set in stone. They could be could be longer, could be shorter in ideal cases, uh, particularly if there are clock stoppages, uh, say in response to RFI requests, the parties need uh, more time. It's not uncommon for, for the clock to be stopped and for these uh, timelines to, to extend a bit. But generally speaking, uh, I, I think uh, phase one reviews are generally complete, completed within about two calendar months uh, on average. And uh, I think for phase two, we're looking at around about five months, um, just as a rough average. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. And, and just to, just to give again our listeners a, a feel for the, um, I suppose the busyness of the the regime. How, how many cases does the authority tend to review per year? Yes, well, uh, there's uh, there's two numbers I think we, that, that are important to bear in mind. There's the number that appears on the triple CS's case uh, case register, as public register, and those are. Are, are of course the, the notified mergers that are formally lodged every year, and I think at last count we had around about 80 to 85 since the inception of the of the regime in 2007, which equates, I think, to about six or seven a year. But we also need to keep in in mind that there are investigations that the the Triple CS routinely conducts into the non-notified mergers, which are not made public. And so the, the numbers um, uh, are a lot higher than, than six, uh, but uh, the official numbers are, are not um, are not disclosed. That's helpful. And Darren, anything you wanted to, to comment on this one? To build on what uh, Scott mentioned, um, these six to eight cases a year are really the tip of the iceberg. Um, that when the triple CS calls in a merger or investigates a merger, the, the unique thing about the Singapore process is that it is intentionally non-public. And, and this differs from some other jurisdictions, even in Asia, where interventions are public and um, are, are much discussed uh, academically as well as uh, among practitioners. In Singapore, there's a conscious decision not to make these investigations public. So a lot of it happens beneath the surface, almost like an iceberg. And the only p parties who are aware of um, the, those merger interventions are the parties themselves, the authority, and the lawyers involved. And in cases where the uh, investigation is successfully dealt with, in other words, the commission decides not to proceed, the public actually doesn't hear about it. So the actual volume of, of cases um, is merely signified by what is above the water level, the public mergers. Uh, much of the activity goes on um, below the surface. And there, there are also instances I've talked about uh, where cases are successfully dealt with and therefore 
no public news. There are also cases where deals have been abandoned um, as a consequence of, of such intervention and uh, are, are therefore not uh, re reported either. Um, you will also see that from the public register, um, some instances where filings have been withdrawn, and that's because the parties made a notification at the request probably of the commission, and because they had to be asked to file rather than proactively file, the filing then ran into problems, and the parties eventually decided not to proceed with the deal. And this is usually reflected on the public register as application withdrawn. But what it really means in practice is that the deal is aborted. Uh, there are ways to manage this risk that uh, I think we can talk about later, but I thought, and Scott and I felt it would be useful to say that um, what is public uh, is really not representative of the entire sum of uh, merger reviews and intervention by the Commission. Uh, that's very helpful. Thanks, Darren. I, I wanted to move us on a little bit and talk about enforcement levels, um, just to get a flavour of, um, I, I suppose, the, the extent to which the authority intervenes in, in merger cases. And so, so maybe I could sort of ask an opening question um, in, in terms of intervention. Does the authority often require remedies, or has, has it ever actually blocked a deal? Yes, uh, the, the CCCS has uh, has blocked a few deals, um, and there are uh, se several cases over the years where the CCCS has indicated that they have concerns. And as Darren mentioned, at the point that they do that, the parties decide not to proceed with the transaction, withdraw the uh, the notification, abandon the transaction, and as a matter of uh, from the as a, CCS's public statistics, that gets recorded as a withdrawn case rather than a blocked case. Uh, but uh, in reality, uh, uh, it was withdrawn because it was going to be blocked. And a, a few cases come to mind uh, in recent years. One was Wilhelmsen's proposed acquisition of Drew Marine. That was an international foreign-to-foreign uh, -foreign merger, if you like. Um, it was being assessed uh, contemporaneously by the CCCS and the, the U.S. Department of Justice and uh, ultimately was abandoned by the parties. Another one that comes to mind is uh, the, the, the Parkway and Redlink uh, merger case, which was a, a local case involving radiology and imaging uh, that was also blocked. And a third case that also comes to mind, an interesting case, is one that involved uh, Grice Holdings. There was a steel drum uh, related case, and in that case, the CCCS issued a, a statement of decision provisional to block the transaction, and at the representation stage, we managed to, to overturn that decision, and ultimately, the, 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 uh, the transaction was cleared. So there have been um, certainly a few cases over the years where the CCS has moved to, to block cases, and uh, sometimes before they officially get to that final decision, the parties uh, withdraw their notifications. Um, and t turning to the question of commitments, uh, I think Singapore is a regime where uh, commitments are looked on um, w with 
some favour at least. They are accepted relatively frequently. Uh, I think latest count there were at least seven uh, notified mergers where commitments had been accepted. And these uh, these cases involved a mixture of both structural and behavioural commitments. Scott mentioned uh, seven cases. So um, the ones where we, we, we have seen um, Singapore-specific uh, remedies, it really started with Seek Job Street um, in 2014. That, that coincided with the formation of the um, CRU, the, commission, the, 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 the Commitments and Remedies Unit within the Triple CS. 2015 was ADB and Safegate, 2017 Times Penguin, and 2018 Path Innovative Quest. Um, now, interestingly, I, I, I say that 2014 was the start, but in the early days, um, so Singapore Merger Control started in 2007, and at that time, um, the conventional wisdom was that international commitments um, would be sufficient to satisfy the uh, Singapore's concerns, especially if it was a foreign-to-foreign -foreign merger. So the Thomson Reuters decision in 07, which is also the year the merger regime came into force, and the Manitowoc Inodis merger, um, these involved the triple CS acknowledging global commitments offered to and accepted by regulators such as uh, the European Commission and the US DOJ. So they tagged on, and then because of that, uh, the thinking from a practice perspective was that uh, the foreign commitments will lead. That changed in 2014 with Seek Job Street. Um, it, it, it's, 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 probably, it's probably part of the, um, the, the planned redundancy um, of this following re uh, pattern um, by, by the triple CS. The, the desire to, um, at the beginning, uh, follow what the um, inspirations were for the Singapore competition regime. But then as it, they developed, matured, uh, sophistication increased, they, dis, they decided to uh, push towards a more autochthonous approach where Singapore remedies and commitments are considered more important and where they took pains to emphasize that global commitments may not necessarily satisfy or deal with the market failure uh, caused uh, in Singapore. Thanks, Darren. That's, that's um, fascinating and really helpful to sort of get a bit of a history on the sort of the, the evolution of the, the authority's approach. Um, just, just one point that, that, that came to mind as you were speaking is uh, whether or not the authority can actually prevent closing whilst it's still reviewing, and obviously bearing in mind it's a voluntary regime. I just wanted to check whether or not it has suspensory effect. Yes. Uh, well, given it's a voluntary regime, the, the, the regime is non-suspensory non in nature. Uh, but with that said, the Triple the CS does have the ability to impose interim directions uh, if, if they determine that it's appropriate. And I think the, the threshold is if they have re reasonable grounds for believing that the transaction, if it closes, will, will infringe the, uh, the, the prohibition. 
and, and one such case where the triple CS went down that path was um, the Grab and Uber transaction, which I referred to earlier. And uh, the, the authority tried to, uh, well, they did impose some interim directions that related to things like the maintenance of pre-transaction pre-trans, pre-trans, pricing, uh, product options, commission rates, and things of that nature. So the, the, the uh, triple CS certainly has the ability to do that as it determines it's appropriate. Um, I, I wanted to just um, appreciate sort of the focus has been on, on merger control. Uh, and, of course, uh, Singapore, like, like most uh, regimes around the world, has, a, has an antitrust regime you know, on the conduct side. Um, and I wondered whether we could just spend a few minutes talking about that as well. And so m- maybe one of you could just give us a bit of an overview uh, of the antitrust regime and what the sort of the focus has been recently for the authority. Of course, uh, the, the the regime in Singapore has two conduct prohibitions: one on anti-competitive agreements, the other on abusive dominance. And on the anti-competitive agreement side, uh, the the oh, and, and the abusive dominance side, the prohibitions are modelled on uh, the. Uh, the European system, so that they are somewhat equivalent to Article 101 and 102 of the European Treaty, albeit that there are some nuances uh, and some very important nuances in the in the drafting that uh, can change the approach. Uh, but but at a very high level, the prohibition on anti-competitive agreements uh, it, it takes this object and effect split. Uh, so conduct that is related to price fixing, bid rigging, market sharing, output limitation uh, is generally considered to be a restriction of competition by object or a hardcore restriction of, uh, of, of competition. And uh, but, but with that said, the, the box, so to speak, is not closed. So I think the, CS, the triple CS has also added the exchange of forward-looking price information to that object box and have clearly indicated that they may add more types of conduct to that object box as we move forward. And then, of course, you have other types of arrangements, be it um, the exchange of other types of information, which, depending on the circumstances, could be considered to to be restrictive by effect. And uh, turning very briefly to the abuse of dominance side, the, the, uh, on, the, on the dominance front, the triple CS guidelines clearly state that there are no indicative or no thresholds for dominance. However, uh, in the next breath, they indicate that market shares above 60% are more indicative that the dominant position is held, and, and similarly, market shares under 60% are, uh, it's more likely that the, the entity is not dominant. And on the abuse side, the focus is uh, generally on exclusionary types of conduct uh, and arguably exploitative type conduct is not caught. Uh, but there is no clear statement to that effect and it's a bit of an open question. Uh, so that's the background. I guess the, the, the main comment on enforcement history is that it has been increasing. And uh, the the both in the number of cases and also the financial penalties if you track them over time, and in fact uh, they've risen to a point now where we have fines in the order of about 
30 million Singapore dollars for a cartel case that involved a few parties with an individual penalty exceeding 11 million. And on the abuse of dominance front, the, there has been uh, several cases, some of which have been closed in lieu of accepting commitments from the parties, but uh, w one case involving cystic went to enforcement and involved a penalty in the order uh, of about a million dollars Singapore, Singapore dollars, uh, perhaps a bit less. One thing to bear in mind when looking at these uh, high numbers, which, which Scott mentioned, is that um, there really isn't a fixed range of penalties. Um, when we get asked the question, what kind of penalties to be expected, um, the answer really is, is, is that it is a function of turnover attributable to Singapore. And uh, in the initial years, the CCCS, um, in wanting to build its jurisprudence, had taken on cases involving smaller companies which tend to be less rigorous in compliance and therefore the turnover and uh, in turn the financial penalties were not huge. Um, however, with the agricultural um, investigation that Scott mentioned, um, we, we started to go into the tens of millions in, in US dollars. And theoretically, the financial penalty could even go into hundreds of millions, depending on the company and how much the CCS is willing to trace um, the control and the decision-making up. So, for example, we, we've had cases where um, the parent company is a listed company um, or a multinational which has some knowledge of the conduct that was attributable to Singapore. And theoretically, in those cases, the worst-case scenario would be a, a multiplier of uh, the parent company turnover, which would, could easily have resulted in um, a, a figure of um, in excess of 100 million. Um, those didn't come to pass, but it was actually because of extensive defenses and ring fencing of the, the parent company. Um, theoretically, because it's, it's a multiplier, uh, the, the numbers could be larger, and we do see it... Um, trending towards that. And, and I can't speak about this without also saying why it is trending towards this. The enforcement appetite of the Commission um, has evolved over time. Uh, the first few chief executives of the agency, and we know the influence that uh, CEs can have on a competition regulator, um, they were career bureaucrats. Um, civil service uh, high flyers who spent two to three years at the agency and moved on. Um, Tohan Lee, who had been the head of legal for several years, became the chief executive and uh, was the first chief executive with a legal background. And, and with the, that, we, we, it, it coincided with... Um, the, the, the uptick in, in, in enforcement, um, it coincided with the willingness to take on international cartels. And uh, the, the first international cartel was uh, 
straightforwarding, and he took a very novel approach of uh, going after a cartel which had actually been settled um, for years before that. Admissions had all been made. And the question that was asked in Singapore was just, of all these admitted statements, was there any effect on Singapore? Four out of the 11 companies filed for leniency, and that started um, the ball rolling in terms of international cartels because uh, when the question was asked, does the CCS take jurisdiction over international cartels? The answer is yes. And, and as a result, now the cartels that are looked at by the commission are um, largely uh, international uh, cartels. The, the, the other thing that is relevant with a lawyer in, as, a, as a chief executive is this. Um, I, I, I think that uh, someone who is a civil servant tends to look at um, a, any market failure or any unhappiness on the part of a party that is being sanctioned um, for anti-competitive behavior or, or mergers, um, any discontent, civil servants see that as a failure on their part in terms of being able to reconcile the interests of all stakeholders. Lawyers, though, take a different approach. Handi has a um, background as a uh, judge and also as a prosecutor. And as any judge knows, that any decision that is handed down will make one party unhappy. And so there is no fear of judgments that uh, upset um, a significant entity. And the reply to any discontent would be, well, you always have the right of appeal. And I do not perceive your wanting to appeal my decision as a failure on my part. In fact, if anything, this is the rule of law um, in, in its best ex expression. So he fearlessly then took on um, cases which culminated with the Grab Uber decision, the highest financial penalties, and he's now handed reins over to Xia Ekor. Um, she was at the commission right at the start and uh, went back to legal service She's a lawyer by training, also a prosecutor and a judge previously. She's come back. And what we see is a trajectory where the baton is smoothly passed over to ECOR. The same kind of uh, fearless approach towards doing what is right in terms of antitrust enforcement, uh, we're going to see a continuity in, 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 in that respect. Um, I think before we finish on this, I, I wanted to also um, mention in relation to the commitments that we were talking about earlier, and this is also relevant to what we're talking about because it happened under Handi's watch, that one of the commitments um, that, are, that is of note would be the Times publishing Penguin Random House uh, set of commitments, which is a 12-year friend commitment, first time that FRIEND has been used in Singapore. It's a 12-year commitment with a monitoring trustee 
and it is still going on as we speak. So um, that commitment is significant both in terms of its scale and also the uh, sophistication of the theory of harm which the triple CS had formed um, and and the basis on which they thought that uh, that merger could not be cleared without remedy. I, I, I think it's a good segue to, if we just, just to try to wrap this up, and you've given us a, a, a huge number of insights uh, into the regime. But I, I wanted to sort of finish by asking you if you're able to share um, some practical tips, maybe one, two, or three, to your choice uh, in terms of what clients should be looking out for when they're engaging with the with the competition regime in Singapore. Right. Um, th- th- thanks, uh, Alistair. I, I, I think if there were a few takeaways, um, some of these have been mentioned uh, earlier, but I, I would sum it up as this. As far as the merger control regime is concerned, um, it is a risk-based voluntary regime. And, and the best way to think about it is that it is similar to the CMA in the UK and the ACCC in, in Australia. The second thing that uh, I, I would highlight is that, um, that Singapore, although it is small as a, as a country, it has a disproportionate uh, importance in relation to um, commerce in this part of the world uh, because the strategic decisions that are taken in relation to Southeast Asia are often made out of Singapore. And Singapore is ranked fifth globally in terms of density of global headquarters. So just because it is a small island, um, it doesn't mean that uh, the uh, relevance of the jurisdiction is is, is therefore um, of the same scale. The the last thing I would say, um, and and I think this is really important when looking at uh, how to approach um, competition concerns in in Singapore, is that Singapore actually lacks a domestic uh, hinterland. Now, let me explain what I mean. Singapore imports 90% of what we consume which means that in the global marketplace, we're a price taker. There is an essential good that Singaporeans require and cannot be manufactured in Singapore. And either there is a cartel or there is a merger, which is going to influence the supply of such products in Singapore or the prices, the triple CS will take an interest um, in it uh, because of the amongst other things, lack of a domestic hinterland, which makes us extremely vulnerable. So we are, in a sense, more vulnerable than, than many countries um, that, ha- that could have a domestic solution to a global market failure. And, and this is a factor which cannot be underestimated. Um, it is not often spoken about. In fact, um, I don't hear about it mentioned in this way. But if you examine the cases and you examine their enforcement approach, it becomes very clear that uh, what is considered uh, essential and non-substitutable domestically has a heightened um, and almost urgent uh, call for response um, to, to the competition agency. 
they they are in the absence of a foreign investment regime they are almost the guardians of um the 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 security of supply um of goods that are necessary uh to singapore and to singaporeans Darren, that, that, it's been absolutely fascinating, and, and as I mentioned, to, to get both yours and Scott's insights. And um, I hope those listening will agree that it's been an extremely interesting and informative session. Um, I'm sure there's also plenty more that we could discuss, um, but I'm conscious of time and, and, and keeping this to a, um, a relatively contained uh, podcast. So um, I, I'm sure this has given our listeners a good overview um, of the regime in Singapore, uh, and so I wanted to say thank you both very much indeed for your time. And uh, for those uh, interested to, to join another one in this series, our next uh, podcast will focus on another Asian jurisdiction. Um, so please do keep an eye out for it. Uh, and until then, thank you very much for listening, and please keep safe, everyone. Thank you.